This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whenever election season rolls around, conflict between political camps really heats up. The Albuquerque Journal, July 31st, it says, Gloves are off. The candidates, quote, wasted no time blasting each other Friday at the official start of the general election campaign. Differences over whom to support can even put friends and family members at odds with each other. I have no clue who to vote for. It's, it's, you know, and I'm usually made up my mind by now. Undecided voters may authentically be at odds with themselves. Oh, I like him. He looks me in the eye. (laughs) I'd like to have a beer with him. I'm voting for him. I don't understand these people. He didn't even say anything and they're eating it up. Today on Peace Talks Radio, some insight into the mind-changing process that targets the undecided or conflicted voter. The most underappreciated aspect of mind-changing is understanding the resistances that people have. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Whenever election season rolls around, conflict between political camps really heats up. Differences over whom to support can even put friends and family members at odds with each other. Undecided voters may authentically be at odds with themselves. And it's often those undecided voters who swing close elections. In the months leading up to an election day, each candidate's campaign workers are trying their best to bring those conflicted voters their way, maybe even change the minds of some voters whose support for a candidate might be soft. On today's program, we hope to get some insight into that mind-changing process that targets the undecided or conflicted voter in election season. Host Suzanne Kreider will talk with two people who've written extensively on changing minds and a political media specialist whose job it is to change some minds. That will be Rachel Gorlin, whom we'll hear from later. Also ahead, Harvard professor and author of the book Changing Minds, Howard Gardner. But we start with a view from across the pond and David Straker author of the website changingminds.org, and the book Changing Minds in Detail. Straker is the head of knowledge management for the U.K. government's National Assessment Agency. His book and website have a lot to say about how political campaigns attempt to persuade the conflicted voter. Well, the campaign managers use many different methods. Um, One of the things that they do is to use a principle that was... It was talked a lot by, by... uh, Freud um, and way before him by Aristotle, which is simply the prin- principle of pleasure and pain. So their base, two basic needs for people is to we, we tend to go towards things that are pleasurable and go away from things which are painful. Uh, and so they'll push the buttons. But I'm wondering if parties are actually trying to change people's values. I thought people's values were pretty cemented. Values are fairly deep but they can be moved and they can be moved slowly. Particularly what, what can happen with values is that when we're stressed, um, our values change. So, for example, if you would say, I would never hurt another person, but if somebody else came up to you and started hitting you or maybe hitting a friend next to you, then maybe your, your values about not hitting others would, would change quite suddenly. 
So one way, for example, is, is how fear is used, is to push values in, into another direction. Explain how that works. Because we have basic needs for safety, it's one of the fundamental needs is for, is for yes, health and safety. If those needs, those deep needs, are threatened, then we'll forget about the other needs and, and go retreat backwards and, and worry about the, those more fundamental things. So it's a very simple thing to do is to, to start pressing those, those deep worries because those will undercut if an opponent is, is talking about becoming the greatest person you could be and, and hope and so on. If you start undercutting that by saying, but, you know, you may be, want to become great, but we're not going to get there if we don't address this, what, you know, the terrorists who are, who are in our homes. You know, the same thing happened, you know, many years ago with, with the, you know, the Reds under the bed and, and you know, the, the, the fear of communism. It, it drove a lot of the political agenda because, simply because it caught, you know, the fear was used very powerfully to affect the electorate. What can voters do? Or is there anything voters can do to neutralize the use of fear? I think the, there, there are two ways that people process decisions. One is consciously and the other is without much thought. If you want to really change somebody in the long term, they have to think about it. So it's about getting people to think about the real issues and getting them to talk about it. And that's how you do change values more, more permanently. If you want a more immediate reaction then and a short-term effect, then you, you press those buttons that make people respond rather reactively and without thinking about things, taking shortcut decisions. You know, you almost suggest the answers for them, so they just go yes without any thought. Um, this is why, for example, just before an election, as, as people are coming up to vote, any approach that's going to cause short-term thinking will be increased because people won't have time to really ponder on the messages. You mentioned health and safety is one of the most primal needs that people have, and so I, I, I guess it would be belonging. Yeah, belonging is slightly higher appeal because the, the, it... It basically get health and safety is first, and those are, those are issues around control. We have a deep need for a sense of control. If we feel that, that we are being controlled or we have no control in our lives, then we all hunker down. Beyond that, when we're feeling reasonably comfortable about with our sense of control and that, that everything's kind of okay, we start then thinking of the more social things and identity-based things, you know, of who am I. And this is where all the internal conflict comes into the voter's mind. It's confusing. Well, absolutely it is. And at the same time, it also you, the confusion is, is a principle of tension. One of the core ways that people get persuaded is through the manipulation of tension. Tension is something you feel. It's literally you know, muscular tension. And you feel it when there's a gap somewhere. There's a gap between what you are and what you want to be. What you're accused of what you think you should be, you know, what you want and what you haven't got. By, m by manipulating those, those gaps, by creating deliberate tensions, then you can create a vector which moves people, hopefully, in the direction you want. I'm Suzanne Kreider, and today we're talking with Dave Straker, head of knowledge management for the UK's National Assessment Agency and author of changingminds.org. We're talking about how political campaigns try to change our minds. Dave, I bought a computer recently, and instead of going to a store 
and talking to a salesperson about what they suggested, I just asked my friends. So I'm wondering if people really do pay attention to political ads or pitches because they know that the campaigns are partisan. Don't people just listen to their own friends or opinion leaders? Well, certainly they do listen to their friends. Um, And certainly if their friends are talking about those things. So if you're in a group who are strongly talking about, you consider them your friends, you identify strongly with them and they strongly identify with one political party, then they will have a very strong effect on you. But I don't don't know how much that happens. And is it too far of a stretch to say that for some people, television is one of their best friends, so they would pay attention to the campaign's ads? Well, well, absolutely. If if you watch a lot of television, then that certainly happens. Although there's an interesting effect here for young people today, because television watching is going down as internet watching is going up. You know, the influence of... Um, places like Facebook and games like Second Life and things like that, the way that young people are being influenced is very different from the way that older people are being influenced. What recommendations would you give to a campaign to pull young voters in? To get to young, you'd get to people, young people or old people, you've got to go to where they go, you've got to fish where the fish are. If younger people are not watching television so much, then advertising campaigns on TV aren't going to help. But what if you could get onto the social networking? What if you could find those people who've got a lot of friends? What if you could persuade those? To uh, What I'd say to campaigners is find the social leaders, find where they are, and get to those people. Dave, I have a friend who does incredible research, reading background papers and position papers and viewing people's websites, just to make a decision about a campaign. But it seems like most voters aren't that motivated. Well, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I've just finished writing a book on Changing Minds, which is kind of like the book of the website, in which I, I, I present a, a fundamental model of persuasion. And the very first and the total all the way through that is knowledge management. It's understanding what information is. It's doing that research. It's really understanding the other person and understanding yourself and what what's wanted and how people might react. Um, Bill Clinton, for example, is, is known to have been a great researcher of people so that when he came along and talked to you, you'd be amazed at how much he knew about you and be really persuaded. If somebody knows about you and are interested in you and he did that very, very well, then you will respond very positively. You know, he was known you'd walk into a room and he'd just capture attention. Dave Straker In one or two sentences, what do you most want people to remember about how political campaigns try to change our mind? Well, first of all, is is that the thing to remember is that they will use any method that they believe will work. Their, Their goal is not to make your life better. It's to get their candidate elected. What you have to try and do is see through the methods and to the real intent of the political people in power. Look to the person themselves. You know, do they have passion? Do they really mean what they say? And if you can get a politician who is like that, then I'd vote for them, whatever party they're in. What's your best tip, Dave, for helping people look past the surface and the negative campaigns to really learn about the true qualities of a candidate? Well, one of the best ways to 
I understand what a person's real intent is, is to watch their body language. Even though politicians practice hard at it, you just watch past tapes of of politicians speaking. You know, when Bill Clinton was talking about Monica Lewinsky, you know, his body language just shouted his embarrassment and, and concern. You know, look at politicians like, you know, go back to Richard Nixon and, and you know, his body language at the time. I, and look at, you know, current politicians as well. The Whilst the words say one thing, words are a, a relatively small part of communication. The intonation of, of the voice, the how the body works, the movement, the face. The face has got something like 90 muscles in it and 30 of those are for expressing emotion only. You can't control that number of muscles. So emotions will leak and then what they feel will appear in the way that they are using their body language, using their voice, how they sound, how they look. That's where you can see a lot of truth that's not in the words. That's David Straker, author of Changing Minds in Detail and the website changingminds.org. He's head of knowledge management for Britain's National Assessment Agency, and he spoke to us from his home in Berkshire, England. Next up, Harvard's Howard Gardner, with more about how political campaigns target the conflicted voter and attempt to change minds when our program continues. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Back with more in a moment. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Today, the conflict scenario we're exploring is in the mind of the conflicted voter in election season and the conflict between competing parties in elections. Suzanne Kreider continues the conversation now with Howard Gardner, professor of cognition and education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's the author of over 20 books, including Changing Minds, which includes ideas about how political campaigns try to resolve the undecided voters' conflict and convince them to make a choice for their candidate. I think that the people who are involved in political campaigns are basically basically work in two ways. On the one hand, they're very interested in providing reasons of a positive sort, things which will make somebody say, oh, yes, I really support this particular um, program or I really like this particular person. Um, But many, many people who make their living working on campaigns really try to figure out what are the Achilles heels of the other side and either subtly or not so subtly uh, try to to promote those. Does negative campaigning really work? All the evidence is that even though people say they don't like it, um, 
that in fact um, a lot of our a lot of our behavior is unconscious and what negative campaigning does is it exacerbates in our own mind the bad things that could happen if somebody who for one reason or another doesn't uh, you know doesn't conform to our desires either policy wise or personality wise gets into into the white house Dr. Gardner, give us a brief overview of the four contents that are used to change people's minds, concepts, stories, theories, and skills, and tell us which ones are most, most successfully used by politicians. I think that both theories and concepts do not work for most what you might call ordinary voters. In fact, uh, <laughs> I think I would even say that ordinary voters tune out when people begin to become conceptual when they use big words. Certainly, all of my studies indicate that the most powerful technique for changing the minds of voters are stories. And stories are rich narratives, which are told both explicitly, like once upon a time, but also implicitly by symbolism, by advertisements, by the background in which, against which you put people and so on. And the stories say, this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to achieve. These were the obstacles. Here's how I was successful. I mean, I love the fact that with Biden, who is famous for talking too much, that a big deal is made about the fact that when he was young, he was a stammerer, because this is sort of giving him a rationale for being verbose now, because the story is that he was a stammerer who, overcome, who overcame his, his stammering. Now, you can sometimes win an election by just by having a good story. Um, but in the long run, you're not an effective leader unless you embody the story. And embody means that you tell a story which is actually um, contained in your own life, that the story is an authentic one which resonates with who you are. We have a very dramatic example of how this failed because John Edwards presented himself as a prototypical family man, you know, loving kids, a wife who's sick, who he's uh, very loyal to, and then it turns out he's having an affair during the, uh, you know, during the very time that she's being treated for cancer. And the fact that he then said, well, she was in remission only made it worse. Like somehow, you know, you can have an affair when somebody's in remission, but not when they're, they're undergoing chemo or, or radiation. So that's, a, that's an example of a story which got completely invalidated by um, your own life. Dr. Gardner, in your book, Changing Minds, you say that the best way to change the minds of a diverse audience, like an entire nation, is to appeal to what you call unschooled minds. What do you mean by unschooled minds? When, when we were talking earlier about uh, people who basically give theories or give concepts, those that we might, in a shorthand, say those are schooled ways of thinking. You say, oh, I'm back in history class or I'm back in physics class and I need to know what gravity means, or I need to know what relativity or Newtonian theories are. And, you know, most of us have gone through this, and we either liked it or didn't like it. But by the time people are adults, most of them don't go through it voluntarily anymore unless there are wonks. But the John Q. public is not. That's why, you know, wrestling is wrestling or uh, reality television shows are watched by 100 times more people than watch PBS or listen to NPR. And... Um, I call that the unschooled mind because you don't need to have any rich kind of information, let alone any sophisticated kinds of concepts or theory. You really understand very much in the way that a five-year-old who hasn't gone to school would understand. You know, they're good guys, they're bad guys, they're people who are likable, they're people who are unlikable. This person can be trusted, this person can't be cheated. Oh, this person is... Uh, 
um, you know, it's in front of an American flag, we must be good. That's the unschooled mind. You don't need to have any education for that. And when we talk about a heterogeneous population, um, of course, there are going to be some people in that heterogeneous population who actually do look at platforms, which would be a, a studily schooled way of doing it things. Um, but most people don't, and so they want to make – I guess here's the, way, here's the way to put it, Suzanne. They want to be able to make sense of the political campaign very much in the way that they would make sense of a, of a comedy show on TV. I'm Suzanne Kreider, and today we're talking about how to reduce the conflict in voters' minds as we talk with Dr. Howard Gardner, professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and author of Changing Minds. Dr. Gardner, I want to ask you later about ads and mass media to change people's minds and campaigns, but what about grassroots, door-to-door campaigning? You know, I saw a judge who was running for a county position walking through my neighborhood uh, in the June primary races, and I'm curious if that's an effective way to change people's minds, and what advice would you give to a door-to-door campaigner? Well, I think in any campaign where there's any chance of reaching a significant proportion of the population, for example, in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, which have um, early votes and they're not very populous, um, door-to-door is, uh, there's nothing like it, because we basically evolved as species to take seriously human beings who we can look at in the flesh and look at directly in the eyes. And it's much, much harder to resist a person who actually comes and, and talks to you and listens to you and so on than it is somebody who's on a screen or, or is in an ad. The only thing I would add there is that um, you have to feel resonant with the person. So if this person who you take an instant dislike to because of the color of their skin or their religion or gender or the way they dress or so, and then, of course, you know, there isn't a positive effect, and there might even be negative effect. You know, my God, if that person is for X, I want to be against X. So you want to make sure that the people who are, you know, walking the hustings are people who are sympathetic. And, and one of the general points is that you're much better off in any of these cases if you are a good listener and a good picker-upper of cues. So if I were advising somebody, I would say, you know, go in, establish a, a warm uh, relationship with the person without even getting into politics, and then ask them some questions about themselves to make them feel important, but also get a feeling about what, what kind of person this is, what kind of vocabulary he or she uses, what they seem to be interested in, and so on. And indeed, um, um, I have a technical definition of a fundamentalist. A fundamentalist is somebody with a commitment not to change his or her mind. Once you detect that somebody's a fundamentalist, you should make a quick exit because you're not going to change their minds. So one of the skills of the uh, the ward healer, we call them, people who could go around neighborhoods and talk to people, is figuring out, you know, this person's committed on your side, give them a hug and get out. If the person's a fundamentalist on the other side, I will never vote for a black, I will never vote for a Republican, you know, don't waste your time, but try to see is this person where there's this, what we would call a swing voter, where the person might be inclined in the other direction or even inclined in your direction but, but hasn't made up his or her mind. That's where you want to spend your time. But you can't convince them unless you know what they're like, and that's why you have to listen. The most under the most underappreciated aspect of mind changing is understanding the resistances that people have. And you can't know their resistances unless you listen and watch. Is there a psychological profile for a swing voter? I don't think that there's one psychological profile for a swing voter. Um, um, but I would say, you know, there, you know, there are at least two kinds that occur to me. One type who are people who are very, very informed and very, very knowledgeable, 
and they really want to know everything about the person. So, I mean, we have, I have relatives who say, well, you know, I'd like to vote for so-and-so, but I haven't really seen their platform about X, Y, or Z. And so that's a swing voter who's always looking for more data. Um, of a different kind of swing voter are people who <laughs> change their minds frequently, you know, and who are very impressionable from the last person that they've seen or heard. Um, so that's, an, that's another kind of, of swing voter. Uh, a person who sees himself or herself as very independent and is loath to make a commitment early on would be another kind of swing voter. Um, somebody who um, had been of one frame of mind or one persuasion but switched you know, in recent years is somebody who's you know, got the potential to swing back again. So those are, those are a few types. But no, I don't think there's just one profile, which is what makes being a streetwalker in, in, in campaigns difficult. I mean, if you're walking down a street canvassing a neighborhood, the approach that's going to work with swing voter number one will be different from that with two, three, and four. It's being a salesman, really. And the best salesmen don't go into a spiel until they figure out uh, what your bandwidth is and what you, you know, where you've been tuned in. Dr. Gardner, I know you're not an advertising executive, but I'm curious what you think about the impact of uh, television ads on changing voters' minds. Are they effective because they're using images as well as words? I think the most important thing about ads is to make the same basic point in many, many different ways. You don't want to just say it once. You don't want the same person say it. You don't even want to say it even in words. You want to show it in many, many ways. You say in your book that... Children have intuitive theories of mind, and one of them is, well, if you look like me, then your mind is like me, so you must be good. Now, can a campaign convince a man to vote for a woman or a white to vote for a person of color? My view about that is that the campaigns work cumulatively. Most Americans don't know and don't care who's Catholic anymore. When John F. Kennedy ran... It was a huge thing for a Catholic to win. Actually, Al Smith was a Catholic who'd run 40 years before, 30 years before Kennedy. He didn't do well at all, but he basically made it easier for somebody to vote for a Catholic. So, I mean, if I can reword your question, certainly somebody who's a misogynist is not going to vote for a woman, but there are many men who are not misogynists, and, you know, they, for them, you know, they voted for women in many things, and they can vote for a woman also. So I think if I could reword your question... Would a campaign convince somebody who thought they couldn't vote for a black or for a woman or for a gay or whatever to do so? It would be difficult the first time around, but if candidates like that become more part of the the scenery, then I think um, it's not a big deal. Look now, we've had two black secretaries of state, right, Uh, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. I don't think anybody's going to give that a second thought, but when I was growing up 40 years ago, a black anybody in the Congress, in, in, in the cabinet, would have seemed, um, you know, a, a huge step. So we might think it's like, you know, water slowly uh, making a stone change. It doesn't happen quickly, but ultimately the stone does change. Dr. Gardner, in one or two sentences, what do you most want people to remember about how political campaigns try to change our mind? Well, what I would like most people to do is to be aware of the um, phony reasons why we get convinced to vote for somebody, and to come to view things which are really more important. And so who people select you know, to run their campaign, those are things which show their judgment. Um, and so I would like people to focus on things which are relevant, which certainly isn't as far as I'm concerned, your gender, your race, your sexual orientation. 
um, and to focus on things like judgment, honesty, um, knowing your values, um, being able to educate yourself and others when conditions change. But uh, I have to agree with, with Churchill, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Namely, most, most elections pick the people who are the taller one rather than the shorter one, and they pick the person they'd rather have a drink with in the bar. And so I would like to have a more informed electorate, but there's nowhere in the world where that's been easy to achieve, so that's probably something that's, that I won't see in my lifetime, but maybe in the lifetime of younger people they will get to see a more informed electorate. Howard Gardner is author of the book Changing Minds. He's a professor of cognition and education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he spoke to us from his office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. At the end of our show, details on how you can help support this series. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking about how political campaigns target the minds of conflicted voters. Our host Suzanne Kreider talks now with Rachel Gorlin, president of Tipping Point Strategies, a political media firm in Washington, D.C. She's worked on many campaigns over the years as a media strategist. She's also taught political media production at American University in Washington, D.C., and has written about media and public policy for many publications. Rachel Gorlin says part of the effort of a media campaign is just to get likely supporters out to vote, and part of it is to persuade undecided voters. It varies in every campaign. There's no formula because each race has a different uh, ratio of base voters to undecideds. Usually, the voters you need to win in many cases only start tuning in after Labor Day. One of the interesting things I've always found is if you're doing – I've done a lot of congressional races. In a congressional race in a presidential year, voters are going to make up their mind if they're undecided after Labor Day going into November – They're going to wait until they've made up their mind about the presidential race. Maybe there's a Senate race. Maybe there's a governor's race. And only then, after they've made their mind up going down the ballot, do they get down to Congress, if they're genuinely undecided. It's a very interesting process to see voters make decisions in races that are not front and center in the news every day. So when you're putting together a television ad for a candidate... Do you develop it based on the base voter or the supportive voter, or do you do it based on trying to change somebody's mind? It varies a lot. Usually early in the race, say that you know we're using the Labor Day start model for when people's, our voters are beginning to tune in to a race. And I keep coming back to congressional races because that's what I'm most familiar with. You start with an ad that's going to introduce the candidate to voters in a way that's going to excite the base, but not assume that everyone out there who's going to be seeing it has all that much information. So you're trying to do both there, but you're not necessarily trying to persuade those undecideds right out of the box. You try to just ramp up people's level of interest in the race. They need to know if, for example, you're running against an incumbent, even if you're not necessarily mentioning the incumbent. Perhaps you, in the spot, want to leave a calling card that will indicate that there's, this is about change. When you say leave a calling card in an ad, what does that look like in a television ad? I, it can just be a very uh, quick mention of vote for you know Jane Smith for a change. I did um, 
the race against Nancy Johnson, who's a longtime Republican congresswoman from Connecticut in 2006. She'd been in Congress, I think, since 1982 or 84. And the guy who was running against her was 32. So we did a lot of, you know, for a change. Because voters, actually, one of the most salient issues in the campaign was that if you're in Washington for too long, you tend to go Washington and you forget about your constituents back in Connecticut. If you at all can manage it, I think that a first spot should almost always be primarily about your candidate because you don't get that many chances to tell your story. And I think your first ad should do that, usually. Everything that I'm going to say about any race is always going to be, well, it depends. Let's focus on the undecided voters. Mm -hmm. What are some specific ways that campaigns target them? Well, partisan affiliation of a candidate is still the single most important fact in a voter's decision to vote for or against someone. Now, the partisan affiliation of a candidate is not going to be the most important thing to an undecided voter. In fact, that's your challenge. So one of the things that we haven't talked about that, you know, I, as someone who makes ads, be relying on very heavily is research, you know, public opinion research, whether it's focus groups, whether they're conducted in person or online, and polling to try to get some understanding of this voter's thought process. Give us a behind-the-scenes look at an ad. So we're seeing a, a really successful political ad. Tell us what we could see in that ad that's trying to capture an undecided voter in those last 10 days. Again, I I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it does depend. I mean, you've got to understand what it is that's holding a voter back from making a decision. What is it? Is it their you know, they think that the candidate, you know, they just don't like him or her. That happens. I mean, likability, whether we think it's intellectually defensible or not, is a really important factor. I mean, it's hard to measure. You've also got voters' own prejudices. And I don't necessarily use that term um, pejoratively. I mean, people bring their own life experience to a voting decision. And it's an emotional decision. It sounds like what you're saying is a campaign has to reduce the negatives rather than increase the positives. Is that what negative campaigning does? It increases the negatives of the opponent? Well, a good negative hit on your opponent is something that is almost, I won't say that it's imperceptible, but it's not something where you're hitting someone on the head with a sledgehammer, probably. For example, a spot that we did in 2006 in the Chris Murphy's race in Connecticut for Congress against Nancy Johnson, we had uh, Chris Murphy, who's a very likable, very uh, appealing person on camera, and also, as I said, 32, gets up and is talking to voters in front of a gas station as he pumps what at that time seemed ridiculously expensive gas. I think it was like three fifty six for a gallon of regular. And talking about how Nancy Johnson had taken money from special interests and it's time for a change. 
People ask me why Congress won't do anything about these outrageous gas prices. Fact is, Washington's been in the pocket of big oil for years. I won't take any oil money. And with my record in the state Senate, they wouldn't give me any. But Nancy Johnson's taken a lot of money from big oil. No wonder they cleaned up when she voted to give them billions in tax breaks. It's time for a change. No change from 50? Chris Murphy for Congress. And it was done in a way that was sort of charming. And you only realized as you were thinking about it that, in fact, you know, he had delivered some really pretty serious hits on Nancy Johnson on the issues. But it wasn't done in a way that, you know, had the scary music and had the, you know, creepy kind of images on screen. There are a lot of ways that you can do a negative where the voters who watch it don't then feel like they need to go out and take a shower. That was what you felt after you watched the Willie Horton ad that accused Mike Dukakis of giving furloughs to convicted murderers who then went out and murdered more people while they were on weekend furloughs. And this was supposedly Dukakis's position on crime. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. That ad, which was very harsh, and I think actually also quite effective, although also very disingenuous and dishonest, that ad was not done by the Bush campaign. This was George Bush, the father. It was done by an independent political action committee. Rachel, when you refer to the Willie Horton ad as very disingenuous and dishonest, it makes me wonder if your profession has an interest in fact-checking or what are the ethics of your profession? Well, this is a good question because it's definitely something that I think needs it needs more discussion within the profession. And I think it also requires that candidates have a better understanding of exactly what a good negative attack on an opponent is, a good and an effective and an honest negative attack. And very often, uh, candidates are as confused by this as anyone else. But the difference is that they're in control of this. If a candidate says, I do not want an ad to go on the air, you can perhaps try to persuade him or her otherwise. But ultimately, they get that call. It's their name on the ballot, and they get to make that decision. But very often, I've found that candidates will say, oh, I, I don't like negative campaigning. But they don't really think through that there's a huge difference between an attack on your opponent that's factually inaccurate, that's, if not blatantly factually inaccurate, the context of it distorts the essence of what was really going on at the time, or that is just frankly, you know, distasteful and sleazy. And there's that stuff too. What's your personal opinion about what your field of media experts should do? Well, I think that... It's a very gut-driven decision-making process. And I think that this gets 
down to the candidates' decision-making originally and who they hire. I think that if you sort of admire the idea that someone might be able to come right up to the line or maybe even cross it on your behalf because politics is a dirty business, then, you know, you're going to end up with something that mm, you might not be all that proud of, ultimately. More with political media strategist Rachel Gorlin when our special program continues, Changing Minds During Election Season. This is Peace Talks Radio, back in a moment. You're listening to a Peace Talks Radio special, Changing Minds During Election Season. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and back now to Suzanne Kreider's conversation with political media strategist Rachel Gorlin, president of Tipping Point Strategies. She's designed media for many campaigns. Rachel, you've taught political media production at American University in Washington, D.C., and you've used Drew Weston's book, The Political Brain. Give us a brief synopsis of his basic theory in that book. Well, his theory, which I think is something that most people in politics, um, in political persuasion, let's put it that way, would agree is the case, which is voters make up their minds based on their emotional response to the candidates and the campaigns rather than to a rational, you know, list-making kind of approach to their political decision-making. And, you know, in other words, it's a a choice of the gut rather than of the head only. It still has to pass the head test, but um, he's drawing on some very interesting work that's being done now on uh, neuroscience and brain, actual study of the brain's reactions to different political stimuli whether it's an ad, whether it's you know still photos, whether it's you know film clips of the candidates in action, um, we're starting to understand much better than we ever have that there's actually a physiological basis for assuming that this is not a you know quote totally rational process, and I think that's very valuable. Rachel Gorlin, what's most important for people to remember about political media campaigns? Pay attention. Pay attention and do your homework. If something seems like it's not quite 100% to you, you wonder about the facts, check them out. You don't want to be feeling like you've got buyer's remorse on election day plus one. That's right, because we can't return it. You can't return it. You buy it, and it's yours. (laughs) Right. 
And that, it, it's something we haven't talked about in the course of this, but is incredibly important, is that so much of what you're doing in every ad that you craft, at, at certainly every positive ad, you're trying to find the common ground between your candidate and the undecided voter. You're, you're also trying to find common ground between your candidate and you know their potential supporters or their already decided supporters, keep them excited. But that's an easier task. But you're always trying to find something that will create as much resonant common ground that will say, not simply, I understand where you live, but, you know, I've lived there. I know what it's like. I know how hard it is to, you know, make the mortgage payment when you're you know, worried about losing your job. I know how hard it is to afford to send your kids to college. I know how hard it is for a lot of people to find decent child care. It's those things that are really what makes a campaign successful and makes a campaign resonant. You know, there are campaigns where you win and at the end of it, you know, even the voters can't remember who they voted for, even if they voted for you. And then there are campaigns that when they're over, people remember and they feel good about it and they're looking forward to seeing you in office with some goodwill. Uh, When I was working on the governor's race in Oregon in 1994, I remember John Kitzhaber, who eventually served two terms as governor, it was his first campaign for governor, saying to me, you know, it matters how you win. And it does. It does. And while it's true that the person who wins with... 50.001% of the vote gets sworn in, just the same as the person who wins in a landslide. It does matter how you win. And then you leave voters with a, a good feeling about you, if you possibly can. Political media strategist Rachel Gorlin, president of Tipping Point Strategies, who's designed media for many campaigns, and she talked with us from WAMU at American University in Washington, D.C., where she's also taught political media production. In our remaining moments, we want to rebroadcast part of a discussion Suzanne Kreider had with two political science professors and a journalist some years back about political advertising. We'll hear the voices of Kate Nelson, who at the time was managing editor of the Albuquerque Tribune, once Albuquerque's afternoon daily newspaper, Gil St. Clair of the University of New Mexico, and Guy Burgess of the University of Colorado. First, though, we'll hear clips from many presidential campaign ads through the years. How can a party that can't unite itself unite the nation? How can a party that can't keep order in its own backyard hope to keep order in our 50 states? Where does Richard Nixon stand on the UN treaty to stop the spread of nuclear weapons? He says he's in uh, 
No hurry to pass it. Hubert Humphrey wants to stop the spread of nuclear weapons now. We've seen walls built around Washington. And we feel like we can't quite get through to guarantee the people of this country a government that's sensitive to our needs. Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change. The smoothest of Iran's diplomatic criminals was shown on American television this weekend, warning American voters that they had better not elect Ronald Reagan. Ayatollah Khomeini and his men prefer a weak and manageable U.S. president and have decided to do everything in their power to determine our election result. Bob Dole voted against reimbursing California for jailing illegal immigrants. Time magazine says his risky tax scheme could cut 2,000 border agents, cut 4,000... Secondly, I believe oftentimes campaigns resort to mud-throwing and name-calling, and Americans are sick of that kind of campaigning. What they want to hear is what's on people's minds and, and where the candidates' hearts are. I hear some people say, you know, this election doesn't really matter. It does matter. Our air and water are at stake, and I need your help to protect them. Call it Country Club Economics. How many houses does he own? John McCain says he can't even remember anymore. That's the real Obama. Ready to tax, not ready to lead. Well, it looks like we've lost a lot of those delightful jingles <laughs> from our political campaigns. What a shame that is. <laughs> so what's interesting to note about the history of political advertising over the last half century? Kate? I think primarily is that... Uh, people became more sophisticated in how to use that medium. That, that um, at those early campaign ads with the jingles, what was on TV back then but variety programs? They were just mimicking what you saw in, in your general programming, and they became more sophisticated in how to put images together, how to um, orchestrate underneath and then over them, and then that those sneering voiceovers that they could add. I swear there's only two people, a man and a woman, working in campaign TV advertising <laughs> these days. I'd love to meet them sometime because they're, they're raking it in, and they can hear, he voted for it. And uh, um, that's, the, that's the primary thing we're seeing in the snippets that we just saw there is, is the sophistication in how to manipulate the 30-second, the 15-second advertisement. I thought it was interesting that the the one um, of Bush in there um, doing the the soft ad. People are tired of the negative campaigning. There's there's that that push pull that they do in their ads where they're they're usually hands off on the one that is negative. Although now they do have to say I approve this ad, and then they're out of the way. But then the ones that do feature them, they are, they're the candidate who's calling for an end to this divisiveness. They're the good candidate. They're the one listening to you. And they all do it. And Guy, what else did you notice? Well, I think that the big change is this increasing sophistication and understanding of the dynamics of how to structure a focus group, how to demographically analyze a direct, an electorate, how you figure out uh, what issues it takes to move the target group of swing voters that you're after, what issues to avoid. Um, and it's really fairly impressive and sophisticated. Unfortunately, I don't think it's very good for our democracy. Why not? It tends to take you away from the real issues. Uh, you wind up focusing the election on the hot-button issues that might um, move an election result and avoiding the issues that the society really ought to be grappling with. Mm -hmm. And Gil St. Clair, what, do you, what else did you notice in the tone? Well, I think uh, 
that sequence of uh, ads that uh, were played um, after the jingle phase, we had some substantive issues in those ads, uh, issues of uh, nuclear proliferation and other issues, um, fairly sophisticatedly stated. Um, and then we end up with the Willie Horton ad, which is, uh, you know, uh, pretty blatantly um, outrageous, but was extremely effective. Um, so I, I think we have seen that, uh, that sort of change. Um, uh, there aren't any ads, though, there in that sequence uh, which I think represent the most effective positive ads, and those were the Reagan ads. Mm -hmm. They were very sophisticated, and they had this upbeat feeling, morning in America, and uh, yet there was frequently a, a negativity portrayed in them that was very effective to the opponent without ever saying that. Right. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? So we've had uh, great sophistication. Now I come back to my point that unfortunately, um, these ads tend to work because a great number of Americans take their political information from them. And so getting the sort of counterweight to them or getting a frame in which to view these ads is not often there. You know, and some people believe that a campaign ad should really focus on why I should vote for a candidate as opposed to why I shouldn't vote for the opponent. But why do attack ads really work? Well, I think they work because, uh, again, there's a lot of folks not paying much attention and something that sort of grabs you uh, while you're uh, not paying much attention um, may, uh, may be effective. And, um, and I'm not sure that at least we political scientists understand why the, uh, the attack ads work so well, uh, despite the fact that uh, citizens say they don't like negative advertising, although there's a distinction between negative and attack. Um, ads. And it is legitimate to use ads which actually deal with substantive issues, past records, mm -hmm. performance of, of an official uh, that may be su subject to uh, uh, critique so by that's, an opponent. So that's the difference between negative and attack? Yes. Okay. Now, um, there's some rules that you've got to employ if you're going to use these successfully. Um, what you put in that negative or attack ad has got to be true, can't be refuted uh, clearly or you lose all credibility. And it can't be personal because that begins to uh, elicit an emotion of sympathy for the person you're attacking. Hey, Guy, I'm, I'm curious about what role the media plays just in the general polarization. And I'm really curious about language because language has an impact about how we think about things. So I want to read a quote from a headline, um, the Albuquerque Journal, July 31st, it says, uh, Election 2004, gloves are off. And then the article reads, the candidates, quote, wasted no time blasting each other Friday at the official start of the general election campaign. So, Guy, language is really powerful. Do you think the media tries to turn elections into boxing matches? Oh, there's certainly a competitive dynamic where um, the media needs to present things in an interesting way that attracts readers. And we've 
heard that the that there's some problem attracting readers and listeners. I think a bigger problem is what you might call the narrow casting phenomena, uh, with the proliferation of news sources with cable and uh, the internet and all of that. It's pretty easy to find a news source that tells you exactly what you want to hear. <laughs> and when you're thinking about the really difficult issues that face the world, it's really nice to have somebody and to spend some time with a community where you feel that, that you're right and everybody else is wrong. So we have both on the left and the right talk shows like Rush Limbaugh's that tend to reinforce the views of the listeners and further drive the polarization of the entire society and take us away from uh, a real discussion of the issues. And to be fair, the same sort of dynamic occurs on both the left and the right. So and we don't really have good settings where we really have to reconcile competing views. We can live in different areas. So what you're saying is we, we actually choose our news outlet based on the language that we like to hear, the way we like language used. And I'm also extrapolating that you're suggesting that people should balance sort of their media diet. Would that, that be true? Make good sense, sure. Yeah, okay. Would each of you, I hate to say it, share a soundbite about what you feel is the most important piece to remember about improving uh, political dialogue. And we'll start with Kate Nelson, managing editor of the Albuquerque Tribune. Pay attention. Dr. Guy Burgess, co-director of the Conflict Research Consortium at the University of Colorado. I think the key is to focus on persuading others that your view of the world makes sense, but at the same time being willing to be persuaded yourself. Dr. Gil St. Clair, a lecturer in political science at the University of New Mexico. Well, I, I don't think I can improve on what Guy has just said in terms of, of uh, trying to persuade others that uh, you mean well and accepting the fact that they may mean well as well, and even though their views are different. We need, we need a trust and we need an acceptance of uh, the basic uh, good intentions of our fellow citizens if we're to have a civil discourse. For links to our guests' websites, their research and writings, and more on this discussion about the science of changing the minds of undecided voters in an election season, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series, order CDs, sign up for a podcast or newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. Donations from people like you help us continue this work, protecting part of the airtime and web space for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Any amount will help us. Do your part at peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Genevieve Russell designed our website. Gonzalo Orfat is our webmaster. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and supporting Peace Talks Radio.